Everything is bigger in Texas, including climate change. But luckily, Houston is leading the energy transition. Here in H-Town, the fourth largest city in the United States, entrepreneurs from across Texas and around the world gather to work with titans of industry to build a technology that will reduce emissions and power a low-carbon future. We sit down with those changemakers and wildcatters who are solving the toughest energy challenges. With trillions of dollars on the line, we dig into how Houston will bring technology to market on a massive scale. Join us as we talk with leaders from the energy capital of the world as they show us how the energy transition gets done. I am Nada Ahmed. And this is the Energy Technology Podcast. And I'm Jason Etier. Let's jump in. Welcome back to the show. We're here today with Andrew Lane. He's the co-founder and CEO of Capwell Services. Capwell has developed a patented and affordable solution that captures and abates methane from end-of-life wells. And uh, th- these wells specifically cannot be properly uh, plugged. Wait, hold on. Let me say that again. <laughs> Capwell has developed blah, 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 until they can be properly plugged. That's the key That's thing. Right. Okay. Capwell has developed and patented an affordable solution that captures and abates methane from end-of-life wells until they can be properly plugged. This allows for the immediate large-scale reduction in a client's emissions profile. So, Andrew, you you just moved to Houston. Uh, tell us about what's brought you here to Houston today. I did, yeah. I've um, been here for about two months now. It's really exciting. I've been loving it here. Um, so when we started out in the company, we started out in Appalachia, uh, obviously a high profile of abandoned wells there. It's the home of oil and gas. So we're very fortunate to get our start there, but it's been an amazing experience thus far. Good. And uh, so we know you're controlling methane. How are you doing that specifically? Yep. Yeah, well, we can we can back up a little bit too, even and talk about the problem as a whole. So um, in the US, there's estimated to be about 3.7 million abandoned orphan wells. Mm-hmm. Um, and that means there are wells that haven't been maintained, that's ab- abandoned, they don't produce, and then orphaned, which is there's no solvent owner of record, so they actually become a state liability. So that's a problem for you and I. Mm-hmm. Um, and so about 60% of these are unplugged and leaking methane. So that means you know you have a, a greenhouse gas that has uh, 84 times the warming power of CO2 over 20 years being constantly emitted from these various point sources around the country. And not only that, there's about 14 million people estimated to live within a mile of these. So uh, you have various issues to human health. Methane and VOCs have been linked to increased asthma cases. Um, some wells can emit H2S, a very deadly gas. So uh, it's, it's a massive problem. And so what we've done to solve it is uh, create an immediate and modular solution. Um, none of these wells are the same. They can go from a rusty piece of pipe in the ground to a fully producing well that had to be abandoned because a logging truck backed into it and now it's leaking from multiple points. Uh, So we designed uh, some sealing systems to capture that gas, bring it in, store it, and then either uh, destroy the gas if there's nothing available um, to do with it around it, which is mostly the case, or do on-site generation or putting back in the pipe if the infrastructure is there. And so tell me a little bit about the ceiling solution. Mm-hmm. I'm, I'm imagining a big gasket, but I'm sure it's more sophisticated than that. Uh, a little bit more. So depending on what's there, you have different ceiling solutions. Um, my dream scenario is it's a fully um, fully built wellhead that you can literally just tap a pipe into, and that's great. Mm-hmm. Um, most and, of the time, yeah. And when you say fully built wellhead, you're talking about the Christmas tree? Or yes. you're talking about, okay. Yeah, the and, Christmas and tree. And- describe this for what people who have never been to an oil field before. What does this look like? Because I... I did mm-hmm. not appreciate that it was not something with like, I guess, baubles on it when yeah. I first yeah, heard it. I know, it's called a Christmas tree, <laughs> yeah. right? It's yes. deceiving. So it's it's a series of pipe coming out from, you know, the well bore that uh, you can use to 
regulate flow, capture gas, um, oil, whatever the well is meant to do. So it's basically what the superstructure above ground is in order to get gas out of the ground. Um, and so what we do is sometimes we can tap into that. Most of the times you can't. Most mm -hmm. of the times the wells are too deteriorated to do that. Uh, in Pennsylvania specifically, sometimes you have literally just rusty pieces of pipe in the ground that is used to be the casing of the well. Um, so we have an internal sealing mechanism that can deal with that. But most of the time we're using an external sealing mechanism, which we're in the process of developing um, to actually enclose the space around the well, capture the gas and then bring it into our system. Hmm. Oh, so you're actually covering like you're literally putting a cap on it to capture the gas. Well, but yeah. Interesting. Hence the name. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Got it. So you said you capture it. Um, and what do you do with the capture mm -hmm. methane if unless you're putting it into a back into a pipeline? Yes. So most of the time what we have to do is destroy the gas. Mm. It's an unfortunate reality that a lot of these wells are um, very old. You know, they've been drilled anywhere from 1859 to, you know, um, the 1920s in Appalachia is kind of what we've been working on. Uh, but that that's just an unfortunate reality because there's nothing you can do with it on site. You know, these wells are two, three miles deep in the woods. Um, and if you don't do anything, it's just going to leak. Uh, so all you can do is have something on site that destroys it. So you can like use a flare flaring. Yeah. A flare is a pretty ineffective solution, but like an, in, a fully enclosed incinerator, um, you know, something that you can run on your own a thermal oxidizers that you use, um, the waste gas as the assist gas. Uh, those are like the solutions that we're currently using. So. And so, and what are the regulations currently like for um, people who drill these wells and then abandon them? Mm -hmm. um, and you said, you know, many of them are orphaned. How do you see that? The, what the, has the regulation been in the past and how is that developing? Yeah. So the regulations for uh, are, are basically blanket bonds. So mm -hmm. when you drill a well, you have to post a bond for the event that say you go bankrupt, there should be money there to, to cover it. But unfortunately... Um, the regulations have mostly been if you post a bond um, in the uh, in the state, it covers all your wells in the state. So it actually is just not enough to even cover the plugging liabilities of, you know, a single well, let alone your whole well profile. So it's it's had a bit of uh, lack of teeth, but new federal regulations coming down are really kind of transitioning that um, into, you know, now we have methane fines as outlined by the IRA. But the carrot side of that is that there's a billion dollars that's been allocated mm -hmm. to, you know, as grants to operators to clean up their their wells. So there's th there's that incentive now. And then on the public side, um, as you may know, the bipartisan infrastructure law just gave four point seven billion dollars to the public sector. So state governments, mm -hmm. tribes, uh, the federal government, they have um, the four point seven billion was to the states. There's more to the federal and tribes. Um, but that's just to clean up the um, the orphan wells for the states. So big. Mm -hmm. Okay. So there's like dedicated funding yes. to clean up these wells in the IRA. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that's, and that's interesting because there wasn't any attention to, to the orphan well problem really previous to this. States had their own budgets, but it was just not enough to handle the problem. Um, it's, uh, the problem was too vast, you know, to even think about handling with purely state money. With the federal money, it's a start, but it's not enough to even solve the whole problem. Yeah. And so I think... Um, you said actually two bills, right? With the IRA and the infrastructure bill mm -hmm. have like the two components oh. mm -hmm. um, that really make this the time mm -hmm. to start this business. 
Um, and I think I heard there are also two components on, on your solution. One is literally capping the well and capturing it, but the other is is kind of addressing the deficiencies of existing, well, it's flare solutions, right? Mm -hmm. That's that's really the issue is flares aren't that good. Because mm -hmm. mm -hmm. Tell us about some of the weaknesses with flares that make them not work well with mm -hmm. these really old abandoned mm -hmm. wells. So um, a, a standard oil and gas flare is about 40 feet tall. It requires a very high flow rate in order to operate. So kind of the core premise of our system is that we wanted to create something that could sit on a well immediately and sit there for 5, 10, 15 years until, you know, we can figure out, you know, to plug the well, can we repurpose it? What are we going to do with it? Um, but if you wanted to just throw, you know, a standard flare on them, even the smallest size you could get, uh, you may have some wells with a high enough flow rate to actually keep the flame on, but the uh, well actually doesn't have a very steady emissions profile. So Sometimes it's emitting more, sometimes it's emitting less. And there's a lot of research out there that talks about this. And uh, at the end of the day, it's very variable. So even if you have something that can hold mm -hmm. a flame for a little bit, it'll flame out and you'll be venting methane through. Um, and that's, that's a problem. You don't want that. So what we do is actually we compress and store the gas in the mean term uh, to actually ensure a most efficient destruction. So um, we can provide the destruction mechanism, whatever it may be at the end, uh, we don't develop that on our own. Mm -hmm. We actually currently outsource that uh, to provide that with the ideal amount of gas at the ideal pressure at the ideal flow rate every time so we can ensure an efficient destruction. Yeah, so, so I guess some of the challenge too is, right, uh, a combustion system has a certain place it likes to run. Mm -hmm. And if you're not running at that set point, you're going to get leakage of a methane going through because it's incomplete combustion, right? And so because you're able to control that um, flow rate, you can always, what you're saying is you can always run it where that combustor is most efficient, you get the most destruction. And mm -hmm. and importantly, we're eliminating that methane, which is, what was it, did you say 84 times 84 worse? 84 times over 84 20 years. 84 times worse, right? Yeah. And so that's why it's so important to control that that combustion system mm -hmm. if it means storing it mm -hmm. or and, and then turning it on when that those flow conditions are right. Exactly. Right. Um, so, so your customer here, you said, you know, maybe operator operators mm -hmm. of these wells, but what if there isn't an, an operator of these wells? Yep. So that's when we work with the state governments and that's actually probably who our first customers are going to be. Um, so the state governments with their orphan wells, uh, they require a solution. They have this money, but, um, you know, out of the 4.7 billion, 1.5 billion of that is actually a performance grant which is basically discretionary and it'll be awarded to the states that actually increase their own spending on it to limit methane emissions. So what we want to do is we want to help a state um, immediately abate their um, emissions, uh, uh, emissions profile, sorry, and allow, um, you know, the, a more efficient plugging process, bring the cost down for everybody um, at the same time, lowering their methane profile and giving them uh, a clear kind of front running in the performance grant section. Mm -hmm. so. so do you also then monitor the emissions? Mm -hmm. Yeah, so so we actually are part of a partnership of, um, we have partners in specifically Appalachia. Um, Zafiro Methane Corporation does the methane monitoring mm -hmm. and uh, initial measurements. Um, we will do the abatement if there's a, um, if there's a high enough leak rate to justify it. And then uh, Plants and Goodwin is our local plugging partner. They're the largest plugger in Appalachia. Um, but we are working on onboard sensors to ensure system health and to ensure a, a zero methane leak process. So. I got a silly question. Where's Appalachia? Uh, so yeah, we're, <laughs> when, when, when I mention Appalachia, I'm talking you know New York, Pennsylvania, Ohio, West Virginia, and some of Kentucky. 
Okay. I keep thinking Tennessee, but I don't think the yeah. oil well is down mm. in Tennessee. <laughs> Not too many. Yeah. So you're saying the wells there are a lot older than, for example, in this area. Yep. Yeah. Fun fact is the first ever oil well in the U.S. was drilled in uh, Pennsylvania. So. Interesting. And they ended up finding more gas was that mm -hmm. happened yep. yeah mm -hmm. yeah there's now um the new development and and don't quote me on this but it's it's mostly unconventional gas plays now. Mm -hmm. and i think yeah. it, it has also to do with the um i guess the nature of the rock right because mm -hmm. it's such an old mountain range it's just i guess it accumulates gas better or at least it's easier to get to the gas than maybe where the oil might be sure but it's been doing that for a long mm -hmm. time but yeah, so so the legacy assets in, in Pennsylvania, you know. And and so, no, it's great. So you got, you got a partner who's going to help you do the service and install. You got a, a partner who can help monitor and, and verify performance. Um, does that mean you're just making devices? Yeah, so so that depends. Um, when, when we actually talk to customers, we try to um, see which of our three revenue streams works best. So we have a short-term rental, we have a rent-to-own, and we have a sale. Mm -hmm. um, the first two are kind of targeted more for orphan wells. So uh, a state government has money, but they don't really have the people necessary to go out there and actually you know, install the system, move it around, maintain it, whatever mm -hmm. you need to do. So that's when we do you know, the rent-to-own model, which is you know, if it's a longer-term or short-term rental if it's a short-term. Um, because we will provide the um, our, our local plugging partner, the we'll do the labor, we'll do the maintenance, we'll do everything involved so that um, they don't actually have to hire more people. Mm -hmm. They have their inspectors and that's all they need. Um, for a, a private sector company, though, they have that kind of technical um, ground force that can actually install and maintain these. So they might be more interested in a sale model um, where we can provide them for a set price, it'll include a couple of years of maintenance um, and training. So the training for their people to be able to install it and put it wherever they want. And the nice part about our system is that you don't have to leave it on one well. You can put it on one well until that well has been you know, dealt with, plugged, whatever. And then you can move it to the next one. You know, Just with once a year maintenance, you can move it along five, 10 years. Not a problem. Okay. Yeah. So is, is it not that the gas is like constantly leaking? Because you said you, you can move it around. Yes. I'm just curious, like how you you move you it that? around once yeah. the the well has either been permanently decommissioned okay. or repurposed. Actually, mm -hmm. so so mm -hmm. tell us how, like mm -hmm. what so we have this uh, this well that was abandoned or maybe either has an old Christmas tree or it's just has a hole in the ground. What do they actually got to do to to plug it, and, and why aren't they just doing that today yeah. immediately? Mm -hmm. Yep. So oh. so plugging is a, a very technical process, and I wish I had my partner Luke here to explain that, but um. Basically what you have to do, and at a very simple level, is stop the vertical flow of gas. So you install uh, cement plugs in each rock formation and you can't have any gas move beyond the rock structure that it is. Um, now the problem with that is, and why you can't do it today, is you need a workover rig to do this. So you actually have to bring like a semi-truck oil rig uh, into the um, space where it could be very heavily wooded, it could have no access roads, it could be under power lines. So even when a well has been slated to plug, uh, it still uh, could be a multiple month process just to build the roads and that increases cost. So um, mm. trying to plug on, on its own is effective, but it's, it will lead to years of leakage and it'll lead to um, a, a higher cost. So what we wanna do is we wanna get out there immediately. Um, we can actually, our, our solution's so transportable, it fits in the back of a pickup truck. It can even be broken down and put in the back of an ATV to run through these woods, get on there and hold it so that um, the the rig can take its time getting up there, save cost and prioritize plugging by area 
versus plugging by the priority list that um, state governments mm -hmm. put uh, put forward. Um, in addition to this, actually, uh, if we want to look at a higher level, there is a set number of rigs and there's millions of wells. So even if all of these were slated to be plugged, you know, on the list tomorrow, there's still going to be years, if not decades of um, lead time leading up to actually getting to these wells. So the, my plugging partner likes to say, if we're if we're still talking that um, this is a generational problem. You know, he says, my great grandchildren will still be plugging wells. So <laughs> we want to be there to ensure that these wells aren't leaking methane mm -hmm. while we're waiting for that. And, and just put this in dollars and cents, like in an ideal condition, how much does plugging a well cost mm -hmm. versus your solution? Mm -hmm. Yep. So so we can talk. Um, you know, in Pennsylvania with federal money, on average, you're talking about $100,000, a little over maybe. Um, our solution, it depends on how long you want it out there. Because if we're talking a state job. Well, just do one year. Yeah. Uh, one year, maybe, and I don't want to nail myself to this, but. <laughs> Give us an yeah. order of magnitude. How does uh, that sound? Order of magnitude of uh, ten dollars to $20,000. Yeah. And, so, and we just know like if, if budgets run out mm -hmm. and they can do five wells versus one, they're going to pick the five, even if mm -hmm. it's more expensive. Yep. Right? Oh, and oh, over the lifetime because mm -hmm. of the just the way the resourcing gets gets deployed. So it's a it makes sense why that's a. So you, cap solution. you capture the methane and then you plug it. Is that mm -hmm. how, how it works? Okay. Yes. Mm -hmm. So that's your like the second step to it. Mm -hmm. um, and then part of your service is also monitoring the the release of gas yes mm. yeah so so in in the system we have um gas quantification you know it's uh it's more of like a informative tool than a you know maybe high fidelity carbon mm. credit generating tool mm. um even though we're working on that uh but we also can ensure that from our system there are no leaks which is what's most important to us we want to make sure that from leak detection you have a zero methane leakage um kind of full solution until you get to the uh, the fully plugging process. Mm -hmm. And have you seen a difference between how, you know, people in the East Coast and the states themselves, um, how much of a priority it is for them versus Texas and who's willing to put in more money and effort into actually solving this problem? Mm -hmm. Well, I, I can say that the, um, you know, the East Coast, you know, the ones that I've been in particularly, so New York, Ohio, Pennsylvania, are very interested in lowering their emissions profile. And I think so is every state. I haven't been, um, you know, actually in touch with Texas all that much yet. I am going to a conference for the Texas Orphan Well, mm -hmm. um, you know, con uh, conference hosted by the Railroad Commission tomorrow. So hopefully I'll get a better sense of it. But every, every state wants to lower their emissions profile. Every state wants to do right by its citizens. Um, and, you know, there's Texas has a massive plugging budget. And we want to be able to help them utilize that to best uh, lower their emissions profile. So uh, I think before we uh, brought the uh, start of the show, you started telling us about how you got started. So mm -hmm. tell us about that journey and, and the team you, you built along the way. Yep. So Capwell was kind of first started as an idea. Um, you know, my co-founders and I were all mechanical engineers at the University of Pennsylvania. Um, and, you know, two of us were actually engineering entrepreneurship um, minors as well. So it was always in our minds to start a company. Uh, so when it came around to the start of senior year, you had to choose a capstone design project. So something you work on the whole year that hopefully solves a problem. 
And uh, so we had a group of five people beginning. Um, and one of them was actually from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. And he had orphan wells, abandoned wells around him. He's like, hey, man, like, what if we tried to do something to solve this problem? You know, I know that there's plugging, but, you know, it's been in my mind because I live there and I'm affected by this. So when when we decided to do that, you know, that was actually right when the BIL was going through mm -hmm. Congress. So all this national tension was on it. It's like, hey, guys, you're going to get a lot of money if you do this. Sounds good. Uh, so we go, went ahead and started developing that. Um, and we took the year, came up with a quarter scale prototype that we uh, validated with a safe gas. And then it came to the point where, OK, we're going to start our jobs or we're going to do this. So at graduation, I personally gave myself that three months before starting my job at a, a major OFS company, oil field services company, uh, to say, hey, can we get any traction on this? And so we were reaching out to state governments, Pennsylvania, um, getting partners. That's when we first started talking to our plugging partner in Appalachia. And so, you know, I, I saw this massive opportunity in front of me and I said, well, should I take the risk and do this or go to the corporate job? And I just knew that if we waited on this, the time would have passed. And I had no no other option than to unfortunately quit my job and, and start capital. Mm -hmm. And that was uh, a year ago. That was a year ago. So and then that, and then it, it took you uh, another year to finally raise the capital. How did that um, feel? <laughs> how did that feel? Yeah. Uh, scary. So yeah. so um, I did, I guess, the whole uh, live in the parents basement, work out of the parents garage thing for about a year. Um, ended up with maybe uh, less than $100 in my bank account mm. by the end of that. But um, I mean, I knew that it was I knew that it was coming. There's there's a gap here in the market. Um, and we're aiming to solve it in an immediate cost effective way. So it was just a matter of time before we did that. So my my first um, step was to raise, I guess, a friends and family um, kind of round. And that allowed us to build our first prototype that we validated in New York, um, Pennsylvania and Louisiana. Once people saw that, you know, then they were jumping on it. Hey, you mm. know, let's let's start raising now. So that's that's kind of our funding journey. And that's kind of what I've been seeing in the um, corporate investing side is like, hey, we need to see something before we put money into you, which is very reasonable, but <laughs> very, but also very scary if you're a founder. And, and your co-founder, is that someone who came along with you from school or mm -hmm. is it someone you found? Yeah, yep, the, mm -hmm. the core team currently is still, uh, you know, the three of us from the project in, in school. Mm -hmm. So you all decided to take this risk. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. Um, one of us stayed behind at school to do his master's in robotics and mm. brings that very valuable experience to us now. Um, and the other one uh, works part time for us. But yeah, I mean, it's it's an amazing experience to be able to work with the guys who kind of uh, were there at the inception, right? Mm. When we were in college um, and, you know, kind of build this company with me along the way. It's It's been amazing. Yeah. And and then what triggered that move um, from, was it in Pennsylvania you guys were based out of? So or? in college, we were in Philadelphia, and then I went home to my parents in D.C. Um, and what triggered my move from D.C. to Houston was I just wanted to be where, you know, the customers are. I wanted to be, you know, where the forefront of um, climate tech is. Mm -hmm. And so that's, you know, kind of prompted my move from D.C. to here. So hold up. Forefront of climate tech is in Houston. You heard that? Take that, Boston. <laughs> yes. <laughs> That's what we like to hear. Not to, not to throw shade at Boston. But <laughs> I'm a Greentown Houston member, I guess. Yeah. 
Um, but yeah, I mean, it's, I, I like to say, you know, when I was in, uh, I've met more people, I think the two months here that were very relevant mm. to the business than I did the year in DC. Mm. So mm. it's just the, the fact of being around these people, everyone's very open to talk about how we can help, how we can work towards net zero together. Mm. So it's been, um, you know, the two months here have been incredibly productive and very, very fun even mm. too. Yeah, I can imagine that there's a lot of relevant talent mm -hmm. for you here for the solution that you're building. So mm -hmm. uh, agree that you're at the right place. <laughs> Thank you. It's good to, good to know that. Yeah. And, and one of the things I heard you say is like part of the reason you said you had to do it now is now is the time. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And that, that, that poses two questions. Why were you worried that um, if you waited, it would be too late? Yeah. So um, with with all this money coming in, you can see a kind of bloom first in the measurement technologies mm. you know you're seeing a ton of research and development going into that and then the um kind of next step that that people are looking at is then how are we gonna we've measured it mm. now what are we going to do with it right um plugging is great but it has that time aspect that we want to eliminate so the next the next um thing is people are going to start pouring a lot of money into the abatement solutions and we wanted to you know have that first mover advantage in the space so if we had waited, I'd worried that be, we'd be kind of boxed out by other people doing things that um, we'd be trying to do. So. Yeah. And then um, kind of the flip side of that question, you know, people are worrying about Flare for gosh, since the beginning of time, mm -hmm. right? What, what technologically has changed where maybe this couldn't have existed 10 or 15 years ago? Mm -hmm. So it's, um, it's a little less about the advances in technology. There are some really good technologies now um, that are coming out. So, you know, um, there's some catalytic development and there's some, um, you know, even things to do useful with uh, methane at low um, mm -hmm. energy needs. So that's something you could actually theoretically do something useful with the gas on site. But our, our kind of philosophy was we would love to include that, but we want to make an impact now. So we um, chose, you know, the most efficient combustor that we can go with and use that as kind of our first step to abate these emissions. And we want to bring these other technologies in as they develop. We didn't want to be waiting a number of years mm -hmm. to actually get our stuff out there and try to make a climate impact. We wanted to do it now. So this is really just driven by market, mm -hmm. market demand. Market exactly. Now, I was curious, I mean, you started a company right out of college. What has been your biggest learning and what is it like <laughs> to be in a startup yeah um well i would say uh and i can actually answer this with a story too mm -hmm. um so i actually turned uh 23 on a well site in pennsylvania in the middle of the night my birthday's november 1st it was the middle of the night halloween in the pouring rain <laughs> um and i wanted to get back to the hotel so i could celebrate my birthday but uh we actually were putting together our combustor and we lost a little washer and uh, we actually had to look on our hands and knees around this well site for a number of hours to find this washer, finish rigging up, and then get in the truck to go home. But the truck was stuck, so we couldn't go home. And I had to call a guy who I'd just met the day before uh, and say, hey, you mind towing me out? So a couple lessons to learn here. Maybe build the small stuff uh, at the factory <laughs> and not on a well site in the <laughs> pouring rain at the middle of the night. Two, don't back your truck down a muddy hill that you need to get back up again. And then three, and this is like the, the startup journey is, especially at my age, don't be afraid to ask for help. You know, mm. we, we can't pretend to know everything. Um, we know a lot about, you know, a very specific thing. But 
I'm not ashamed to ask for help. We've, you know, really been pushing on mentors. We want to have mentors in the um, finance side. We want to have mentors from the engineering side, the oil and gas side. So asking for help and building that kind of network around you is how we've actually been able to have the success because you, we were mentioning a little earlier, um, it is very relationship driven and having people who are willing to go to bat for you that have the connections that I may not necessarily have has, is, is the reason why we're here. Hmm. I think that's such an important lesson hmm. that a lot of people just starting out don't understand is that asking for help, actually people want to help you, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. And it's also knowing where you need help and being able to identify that. Um, so thank, thank you for sharing that. And what has been your biggest challenge? Yeah, so our biggest challenge, I think, has been, um, it's, it's just the nature of the business as well when you're working with the government. It's a long sales cycle. Um, like the engineering development is difficult, you know, it's, mm -hmm. uh, but at the end of the day, you know, we know where we are, we know where we need to go. So we have that path forward. It's the um, kind of the sales side that's a little bit the most daunting because we want to get in front of people um, mm -hmm. early, right? But then like, I, it's kind of the same with funding. They want to be, hey, we want to see your stuff now. It's like, well, actually we have another three months of development on this stuff, so you can't see it now. So that's that's kind of um, the the big pain point as well as, you know, especially if you're working with the government, hey, you can't see it now. Okay, sorry, we can't allocate any budget to this, you know, post pilot. So wait till next year when we can actually allocate some budget to this. So. Um, but I mean, luckily, we're, we're in the point now where we're looking for pilot programs. You know, we have our uh, commercialized system coming out early in uh, 2024. Mm -hmm. So, you know, we're looking for pilots, trying to get our tech out there, have people see it. And hopefully that gives us the interest to kind of push forward in the government side as well as the private sector. Hmm. Yeah. So the, the sales cycles are long mm -hmm. and like the budgeting and also, you know, you, the, the three founders have been wor working more on the technical solution. Mm -hmm. And now when you're in a startup, it's all about building a business. And what's kind of been your key learnings or transformation in, in, th in that thinking that it's not only just about providing a solution, mm -hmm. but it's a, it's, um, you need to have a product market fit, right? Yes. And then you need to develop something that's going to be able to scale. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and that, um, and to, I guess, plug Penn's uh, engineering entrepreneurship mm -hmm. course, um, you know, that was instilled in our heads in day one. You know, um, you want to have a market pull versus a market push. You don't want to just build the tech and kind of throw it at people and say, here you go. Um, so what, what I see as, I guess, a challenge to us, but it's also a massive opportunity for success is, well, we've built uh, a system to, uh, to address the problem. That much is clear. We can eliminate methane mm -hmm. emissions for people now how can we make it financially worthwhile and mm -hmm. that's what we've been attempting to do and hopefully we'll demonstrate with our first pilot programs so yeah. and and you said that you've recently finished uh, your pre-seed mm -hmm. round can you tell us a little bit about, about that that journey about fundraising yeah so so that um i think we started it in about um you know, January, February of uh, 22 and ended up closing in August. So it took a little bit of time, but, you know, having that um, even like in the deal process kind of gives you hope, right? You don't want to mm -hmm. get your hopes up too much. Anything can happen at any time. But, um, you know, it was a, a corporate that, you know, understood the vision, um, understood the problem and wanted to help us build towards that. So 
um, you know, I've been very happy to have a corporate investor on um, early because, you know, again, having people who have the technical expertise as well as the sales and um, connections in the industry um, are, are very valuable to us. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And, and I noticed, uh, you, did, did you do the, the startup competition roadshow? I don't think I, I saw you do that. No, I didn't what, actually. What, was that a choice or was that um, just a, a vestige of where you were? Yeah, I think that's about it's about where we were. I mean, we we applied actually um, to Greentown. I've always wanted to be a, mm. a Greentown company, you know, pre raising um, any real money. And they said, OK, we'll come back when you raise some money and which makes sense. Right. It's a it's a uh, cash based thing. Mm. But um, well, so then when when we got a, a lot of that, you know, pre having anything right pre even prototype, we said, OK, well, we're just going to buckle down and build our prototype, show everybody what we have. And then from there, we can go ahead and actually, you know, start getting our name out there. And this is actually the very first step in that. This is mm -hmm. the first podcast we've ever done. So thank you for this. I'm glad to have yeah. you. Yeah. But one of the things I'm also curious about, and this is maybe going a few steps back, is, you know, when you're with your team in, in school, how did you figure out what roles you wanted to have on the team? And, and did you did you have to raise your hand and go, oh, I'll be CEO or was it <laughs> I'm going to be the CEO? Right. How, how did that conversation go? Um, it was it was more of actually and I think this was the right way to do it, I hope. Yeah. Um, of Well, we each looked at, you know, our past experiences, what our strengths were. Um, and that's kind of how we decided. So one of the the one who's doing our our COO slash CFO kind of role right now. Um, had a background in consulting. Um, one of them, uh, the one who's here in Houston with me, is a roboticist. So obviously mm. his technical experience kind of pushed him into the CTO route. And I luckily had a little bit of both. So when it was just uh, when it was me in my parents' garage, I was I was able to do a little bit of marketing sales mm. as well as some of the technical development. So I just kind of fell into the CEO role, I guess, um, on that. But I think, you know, we're all very happy with where we fit in in the corporate structure. Uh, and it's we're, we're all friends as well. You know, mm. it's it's very nice to be able to come into work every day and work with your friend on something that's cool, meaningful and can provide a solution to a very big problem. How do you see the market for your solution developing? Mm -hmm. So we have that four point seven billion from the state side and we have those grants as well as the fines that kind of force mm -hmm. operators to take take a stance um but i i kind of see it as we want to make this immediate impact but we want to also create something useful from it and that may involve bringing in technologies that don't exist yet um and it may involve you know a little bit of uh, a change in um the system but that's kind of small compared to our grander vision which is you know we we started in oil and gas um end of life wells. Um, there's a clear path forward into the marginal producing wells, which is what the um, the IRA is actually addressing. And then uh, finally, we want to actually move into other areas of oil and gas with high methane emissions um, and, you know, actually develop solutions for those. So we, we hope, you know, in our grand dream, when I go mm -hmm. to sleep at night, I see ourselves as the um, the methane mitigation people for oil and gas. Hmm. And, and how do you see, you know, now you've been talking to a few investors, um, closed on one corporate investor. Um, how does that, um, how do you see methane mitigation being being attractive? Are you looking for venture capital? What kind of investors do you think will be interesting for you going forward? 
Uh, well, we're really open to anything. I mean, um, in our first round, we weren't really um, super, I think, traditional venture attractive. But, you know, now having demonstrated the market a little bit, I think we're a little more uh, avail- like, um, interesting to normal VCs. We still get a lot of interest from corporates as well, mm. especially in the oil and gas space, because they are the ones who are facing this problem every day um, and they want to invest in something they can use. So that's kind of, I think, uh, the, the next step, too. But having proven out our market, having like done pilot projects, you know, in the next couple months, we're uh, we're hoping to actually, you know, we're, we're not counting anybody out is mm. at the end of the day. You know, mm. corporates bring something great to the table. Traditional VCs something bring something great to the table. And we're trying to be attractive to those. Mm. Have, have you run into VCs who won't touch anything related to oil and gas? Uh, not as of yet. And I think that might be because of. Um, maybe Greentown, Houston. Mm. Uh, like, I mean, Greentown, Houston has oil and gas partners, right? Mm. And and we understand that you know they are. We don't. We're not want. We don't want to point the finger at anybody. We want to all just work together and solve the problems that we have. So um, I guess since we're very clearly oil and gas, the ones they wouldn't even bother <laughs> reaching out to us. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I haven't spoken to anyone yet. They're probably mm. just you know, keeping us away with a 10 foot pole at that point. But, you know, there's there's many climate tech VCs that are very interested in, you know, uh, working towards working towards an oil and gas net zero, mm-hmm. especially net zero methane. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I see it as oil and gas, but at the same time, it's on the mitigation side yeah. of oil and gas. So it fits into the portfolio of mm-hmm. people who are trying to mitigate their emissions and and only have net zero within their portfolio. So I think it's definitely going to be attractive. Um, but my question is also in terms of like its potential, right? Because VCs are often looking for these unicorns, mm-hmm. and um, and a lot of climate investments might n- not necessarily lead to that kind of impact. I mean, they have they have more tangible impact in terms of climate, but not in terms of like the stock price. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, you know, have you thought about that? Have you had those conversations? You know, what, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, and, and that is something like that we, we think about a lot. The total addressable market for, for what we're doing is very large. There's a large number of wells that are leaking, right? But how many are actually, you know, going to be viable for use with our product, viable to be, you know, um, uh, all, all that. So that actually narrows it down a little bit. Still a, a multi-billion dollar market, but um, unfortunately, that is something that we have to consider. So what we're doing with that is we're also hoping, you know, to keep an eye on emerging technologies coming out of labs, coming out of universities, to maybe incorporate and do something useful where we can actually sell some stuff. And then that that way, you know, we're not just a mitigation company. We actually create something useful out of waste gas, um, as well as... Uh, you know, expanding into mitigation in other spaces. So um, I mentioned oil and gas, other mitigation. Um, there is a lot of methane emissions from the agriculture industry, um, landfill biogas. There's a lot of, like we want to be the methane mitigation specialists and, um, you know, expand into those. So hopefully, you know, by diversifying, building out different product lines, we actually become even more attractive to investors. Hmm. And and I do think this this problem's going to be around for decades to come. So it's mm-hmm. not something that's going to go away. Oil and gas is not going to go away. It it might become less, but it's 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 going to be around. So yeah, yeah. And, and actually, you're reminding me. There's this um, island in Boston called Spectacle Island. It used to be mm-hmm. a landfill, mm-hmm. and you you and they turn it into a park. 
so that's good urban reuse. But you walk around and there are these um, pipes coming out of the ground. Mm -hmm. It's because the methane mm -hmm. is, I guess, being digested in the landfill mm -hmm. and it will be forever. Mm -hmm. um, and they need a way to vent it out mm -hmm. so it doesn't become a explosive yes. <laughs> event. Mm -hmm. But uh, <laughs> one of the early Greentown companies, I think called Loci Controls, like goes and, and monitors these mm -hmm. things. And it's it, there will always be a need to kind of control that and, and, and they vent it. They don't mm -hmm. burn it because mm -hmm. they don't have a way to capture it effectively um and then the same thing also happens with um uh, uh farms where they have to mm -hmm. do like manure pits right there's there's always a challenge of i think mm -hmm. for farms less than a thousand cattle it's just yeah. not effective to capture the methane or flare it so mm -hmm. they, they there's a lot of, i can see where there's a lot of other places for this technology to go yeah it's just you're starting in oil and gas mm -hmm. because it's because market with the biggest pain mm -hmm. yeah sense. and we wanted you know and it always comes back to, you know, where can we make the biggest impact mm -hmm. immediately? Mm -hmm. And the abandoned orphan well space is where we can do that. Hmm. Interesting. So when you, when you think about what's going on ahead, you're, you're developing technology, you're going to start introducing the company to the market and the technology to the market. What are some of the other big roadblocks you're seeing coming down your way? Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, having just closed a round, uh, the last thing I want to think about is raising another round. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, hopefully when we have, um, you know, our commercialized system come out, that's kind of when we're going to start raising another round. And so, you know, money's money's always a big thing on mind in startups, right? Um, so how can we best manage it? Um, how can we best utilize it to accomplish what we're doing and still have the runway to, you know, be able to feed ourselves, right? Yeah. So um, that's, that's kind of a, an overarching problem that I face is not necessarily a financial guy um is is uh how we're going to do that but luckily we have a great system of mentors like i was talking to you about earlier mm. that you know provide advice kind of let you know hey are you doing something completely unreasonable or does this make sense um and you know so so far it's been working out so yeah once we once we get our pilots get some money we want to go and you know fully attack uh commercialize uh commercial scale deployments so yeah no it, it, this is a you know as a first-time founder mm -hmm. Um, it's funny to see kind of every, everyone I meet goes through this like, oh, we just raised our seed round. Now I don't know what to do. And that kind of goes on for like two or three months. And it's like, oh, wait, I got to raise more money again. We got to get back to work. And and, and, I, and I think every every founder kind of goes through that. And then the, the folks who are really experienced raise money and they go, okay, now we got to figure out what the next round is you know, after their coffee break. Mm -hmm. um, and it's just part of the the cycle that of of being the the CEO. You're always you're always selling, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. um, but that's that's part of learning how to be that that's that startup yeah. CEO, right? Hmm. So interesting. Um, do we want to talk about Houston? Yeah, you, yeah. yeah. Huh? I was gonna say because we usually ask um, our guests, you know, their views on Houston. You've, you, we've mm -hmm. asked you a little bit already on sort of the inno um, the innovation ecosystem mm -hmm. in in Houston and how you might maybe you could reflect on how that might be different from where you've come from in DC. Mm -hmm. um, some some differences that you might have seen yeah yeah so, and, and philly too yeah, yeah and philly, philly too, too. Yeah. um so in dc i actually wasn't exposed to a lot of startups mm -hmm. um actually i was the only founder i really knew mm -hmm. in my friend group and that was a little bit of an isolating experience um you know there's no one you can really talk to about like hey man this deal is going on a bit longer than i thought it would you know what what is it like tell me it's okay right <laughs> um and so that was that was a little bit um scary but luckily you know especially in the pen ecosystem innovation is a huge thing there um so you know we always had that kind of um you know a bunch of companies started out of you know our europe pen 
um, a lot of them are still going, which is mm. which is great. You know, we survived the first year uh, valley of death and then we got to go to the next <laughs> valley of death to get past. But um, yeah, I mean, so so that's what I really liked about Houston in particular is that um, and even uh, in Greentown Labs is, you know, everyone is always willing to talk about, hey, these are our struggles. Um, this is how we got through them. You can try very similar things. Uh, and so, and then even us, we, we helped answer things too, you know, being young and being young, but we still, you know, know how to raise money from corporate. So when people have asked us about that, we've mm. given our thoughts. So it's kind of like a, a mutually sharing relationship is what I've really liked about being down here so much. Mm. And I mean, Houston and Texas is very different from the East coast. Mm -hmm. So has there something that's pleasantly surprised you and doesn't have to do with the ecosystem, but just in general mm -hmm. about the city? Uh, the food. Um, <laughs> I did not expect to come down here from D.C. and have amazing food all the time. But, you know, in my two months here, I've had great food, um, you know, met a bunch of people. Everyone's really friendly. I will say the one drawback is the heat. Mm -hmm. um, <laughs> oh, I think, this, oh yeah. yeah. I don't know. The past two months you've been here, I guess you missed the worst of it. Yeah, you missed yeah. the worst of it. Although oh, yeah. that, that wasn't the worst of it? Yeah. Oh, no. come on. No. Um, I guess you were here in August. Yeah, was yeah August was August, pretty bad. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but I, I drive a pretty old pickup truck that we use as our company vehicle and the AC hasn't been working and it's been very <laughs> unpleasant. So that's the one thing. That but I, yeah. um, I mean, this was also my first summer back yeah. after 10 years of being away. And everyone keeps telling me like, this was a really extreme heat this mm -hmm. year. Most of the time we don't have 100, over above 100 degrees for weeks. And yep. this time it was months, mm -hmm. almost two months. We had above 100 degrees. So it was an extreme. Let's hope it doesn't repeat itself. Yeah, I, I tend to be bad luck when it comes to weather. <laughs> um, I mean, I'm, I lived in Minnesota for a little bit. Uh, I played hockey there. And I was there during like the record breaking cold <laughs> where Celsius and Fahrenheit got to be the same. Yeah. Um, and so then I came here and now it's record breaking <laughs> hot. So I've, I guess I've been through a lot of it. Yeah, that's funny. I, I also had a car that did not have AC for my first 10 years, but I was in, in Boston. So oh, in Boston. Boston. Oh, in Boston. So when, I, when I first moved here, I was like, first thing I'm getting a car that has functional air conditioning. Yeah. yeah. One day. One day. <laughs> you can all aspire to something. <laughs> Um, have you, um, is, is there any hidden gem that you've kind of come across? I'm still looking. Yeah. I mean, um, I, I go out with my friends, uh, in the Heights and, and that's all very nice, but I'm where, still, where, what bar are the cool kids going to tell us that? Well, I, I wouldn't know. <laughs> <laughs> I would not know. Um, no, we, we usually go out like Wicklow Heights, Kirby Ice House for a UT okay. game is something yeah. that. You know, uh, having uh, having not gone to a massive football school, it's crazy to go to like Kirby Kirby Ice House during uh, a UT game and see like the support of all the people that went to UT. So I thought that was really cool. Something I've really enjoyed about it. But yeah, football down here is like a religion. Mm. It's, yeah. it's big. Mm, it's, it's, it's huge. Yeah, it's what, huge. Also, one of my biggest disappointments going to an ice house, no ice. Like, what is that? I yeah, I'm still not sure about it. It just seems is. like a bar, right? Yeah, yeah. it's just so a bar. So I'm, I'm always confused because uh, I kind of expected to be have, like, they would have coolers out mm -hmm. and there would just be like that that mist coming off. No. No, so, not that. Yeah. Someone will have to educate it's me a good on, idea, on what's though. going on. Mm. Anyhow, I digress. Um, are, are there any gaps that you've seen in, in your, your quick two months you've mm. been here? I'd say give me a year, I'll get back to you. Okay. But um, I mean, as of right now, I only have good things to say. So I hope it stays that way. Mm. <laughs> good. Um, yeah, is um, how can our audience help you and support you mm -hmm. in your goals? Yeah, well, like I mentioned, you know, our, our pilot projects, that's something that we really want to, 
um, start pushing. So uh, early 24 is when we'll have our commercial system out. And, you know, we have a couple lined up already and we just kind of want to get it out more. So if that interests you or anyone, you know, definitely reach out to us. And then the dreaded fundraising, too. That's that's something else that we need. And, and how should people reach out to you? Uh, so on our website, we have a, an order form, uh, not an order form. Sorry. If you want to order it, too, please, <laughs> please go ahead. But uh, like a contact form, um, reach out through there. Or you can find us on LinkedIn. Um, it's linked.in slash capital services, capital dash services. So um, either one is great to reach us on. And we do a lot of uh, and we're hoping to do more LinkedIn posts to kind of keep uh, our our audience and our clients and everyone engaged. So we'll be pushing that a little bit more, too. So if you want updates, go to us on LinkedIn. Cool. Do you have any parting thoughts? Uh, no, other than that, I'm, I'm really glad that I had the opportunity to kind of tell you about the problem that we're trying to address. It's a very big problem, you know, as uh, a warming potential problem, also as a human health problem. So I just uh, wanted to come on here and tell you guys that we're very passionate and how how we wanted to fix this immediately. So cool. Well, thank yeah. you for, for making a change. Yeah, yeah. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. Thank you for listening. I hope you enjoyed today's show. If you like the show, share it with a friend or give us a review on your podcast platform. Lastly, if you have an entrepreneur in Houston that you'd like to hear more about, let us know and we'll try to bring them in. See you next week on Energy Tech Startups.